Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Dear saints, once again, the gospel lesson for today is from John chapter 16, like it was last Sunday. And this is coming from the same discourse that Jesus had with his disciples before he was betrayed and crucified and resurrected. So this is coming the night of, that, that uh, he is betrayed in the upper room. Uh, last Sunday, Jesus taught them about the sorrow that they were going to face and then the joy that they would have. Uh, but today, this Sunday, he's teaching them of the benefits or the advantage of his death and his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, so Jesus says these words. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what does that mean? Well, the first uh, thing to, to note is that the Greek word here, parakletos, is the word translated as the helper. Uh, other translations, uh, you, if you have different versions of uh, translations of the Bible, they'll say uh, in this text, the comforter or uh, the counselor or the advocate, the helper, things like that. Well, that's because the word is multifaceted and very complex, and it actually means all of those things. So they're all right. It's just a different emphasis of it. Now, uh, and notice that Jesus doesn't say he'll send a helper, but the helper. Uh, and it's none other than the third person of the Holy Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit. Uh, just a footnote here. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we refer to the Holy Spirit as he and not it. Keep that in mind. It is God. It is God. We don't, we don't call the Holy Spirit an it or a thing. It is God himself. Okay. Uh, secondly, Jesus says, he, then he says this. He says, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Well, what does that mean? The going away here that Jesus is talking about is not a reference to his ascension, but a reference to his crucifixion, to his death. And when he says, if I don't go away, he is saying, if I don't suffer and die on the cross, then the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So Jesus isn't saying, he's not, what he's not saying is this. He's not saying, look, uh, this world is too small for the two of us. So as long as I'm here, he can't come here. So I got to go away to make room for him so the Holy Spirit can come down. And that's how it hits our ears. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if I don't die on the cross and suffer and die there in agony, then the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with you. And in fact, you will not have the Holy Spirit because that's the only reason he is with you is because of my death on the cross. Then, uh, th that is the gift then. Uh, then the question is this, what does God, the Holy Spirit, do? What is his goal? Uh, we know what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to suffer and die. But what does the Holy Spirit do? Right? What, what's the benefit? Why, why uh, have the Holy Spirit? Well, this is what Jesus tells us. He says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of things, to convince us of things, specifically the truth. That is his work. And we need the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Christian. Nobody can be a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. No one can have faith. First Corinthians one twenty three says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the Holy Spirit's job is to convert us. 
to convince us, to persuade us of certain things that we ourselves would have never believed on our own. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. It says the natural person, that is someone without the Holy Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so those verses go together. So that means that you are a Christian not because you yourself decided to be, but you are a Christian because the Lord decided to make you one, to convince you and persuade you to be one through his word. Now, so that the Holy Spirit needs to convince us of things. Then the question is, well, what exactly does he need to convince us of? And Jesus says it in the gospel text today. There are three things that the Holy Spirit will convince us of. He says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, convict the world concerning righteousness, and then finally concerning judgment. So I'll take them up in order. The first one is that he will convict the world concerning sin. This means that we need the Holy Spirit to teach us that there is a real thing called sin and that it is in every single human being. You cannot run tests or look in the heart or measure this sin. It's not going to show up on a scan, but it is deeply real. The thing is, we can see the effects of sin. We can see the consequences of sin, but we can't see the thing of sin itself. Uh, we can't see the disease. And more than that, it's not just that we can't see it, but also we cannot feel it. We can't feel sin. Uh, we feel guilt, and that comes after sin, but we don't feel sin or the disease itself. And the problem is that we oftentimes think if we can't feel something, then it must not be true or it must not be that big of a deal. Uh, if you can't feel sin, however, that just means that your heart and soul have become so damaged by it that you're numb to it, that you can't feel it. That means you're dead inside. Now, to deny that you're a sinner uh, that deserves God's wrath, that you actually deserve God's wrath, simply because you don't feel like a sinner who deserves God's wrath is Simply put, such a foolish thing, such a, a stupid idea. Uh, I've used this comparison a lot, but it's like a man who has a terminal disease and then he refuses treatment simply because he doesn't feel the disease. Uh, so the doctor says, look, here's the results. We, we did the test. You have the disease. It is in your blood. It's in your genes. And not too long from now, you're going to die from it. And so you need treatment, you need the medicine, you need the help. Uh, now, how foolish is it for that man then to say, look, well, I don't feel sick, so I'm not going to pay for the treatment or do any of it. I feel fine. Uh, how you feel doesn't change the reality. And that is what's going on when people deny their sinfulness and their actual and deep, profound need for a savior, the forgiveness of sins. Here in church, it doesn't matter how you feel at any given moment. <clears throat> That's not why we're here. What matters is the truth. The Bible tells you the test results for your soul, and it says that you were conceived in iniquity and born with the disease, Psalm 51. And it also says that your heart is deceitful above everything else, above all things, 
Jeremiah 17. And it says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. And it also says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and these are what defile a man. That is the diagnosis and it is dire. And even worse, you can't feel how dire of a situation you're in. We can't feel our need, for, our, our, our need for forgiveness or our sin. And that is why we just simply have to confess it. Uh, that is why the Holy Spirit has to convince us of it. Look, <clears throat> week after week, we all gather together here in church. And at the very beginning of the service, one of the first things we say out loud together is we say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. Now listen carefully. We're not saying, I feel like a poor, miserable sinner. The truth is, sometimes I do feel like that. I do. Today being one of those days. Other times, I don't feel like that. Sometimes I don't feel like a poor, miserable sinner at all but I believe it and I'm convinced that I am even when I don't experience it. And that is why we say it because it is true, not because you feel it in in that moment. When we confess our sins, we're not talking about how we feel about ourselves, but we're talking about the truth. We say we're sinners because the Lord has has said so regardless of our attitude in the moment. And so that is the first thing that the Holy Spirit has done for you. He has convinced you that you are sinful through his word. So if you confess that you are a sinner, that you do have sin, and that it is a grave situation that you are in, then that is only because the Holy Spirit has taught you that. That's a good thing. That's the start. But the second thing that the Holy Spirit does is convict the world. And Jesus says concerning righteousness, Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, before Jesus was saying his going away, uh, that was about his death. But then when he says, you'll see me no longer, uh, he is referring to his ascension. When he's going to hide himself from our eyes. And the point is that even though we can't see Jesus, the things that he said still hold, hold up. They still are true. And that is what the Holy Spirit is trying to convince us of as well. That's what he will convince us of. Um, he's convincing you specifically, chiefly, that the righteousness you have before God is not your own in part or in the whole, but it is entirely the righteousness of Jesus that he won in his life. Uh, And that is the gospel itself. In other words, uh, in theology, we call this imputed righteousness, that the righteousness of Christ, everything he did, he takes it and then he attributes it to you as if you did it so that he credits it. He transfers it to you so that when the father looks at you, he says, you did this. You're the one who accomplished these things. You loved your neighbor to the bitter end, right? To the bitter death. Uh, That is called imputed righteousness. Now, 
there's no perfect analogy for it, and, and you can explain this a number of ways, but I think I came up with a way that might illustrate the point um, in, in, in some way, uh, not fully, of course, but in, in some way to grasp it. Uh, for the past three years, I've received uh, birthday and Christmas presents from my son, Martin, and this past Christmas from my son, Anderson. Uh, and now you know that um, Martin just turned three and Anderson was about three months uh, at Christmas. Anderson can't talk or walk. And Martin was almost three, but he doesn't have a job <laughs> or a car or money <laughs> at all. <laughs> and yet I got a present from them with a card that said to Papa from Martin and Anderson. And I know what's going on here. I know that it was not them. <laughs> I know that it was Erica who saved up her money uh, and took time off of work and drove to the store and bought the present and wrapped it and then wrote the names on there and put it under the tree. And yet she didn't put her own name on the gift, but she put our son's name on the gifts. And so the Christmas morning, I got the present, I opened it up and I loved it and I thanked them. I thanked them and I hugged them and I kissed them and I said, this is the best present in the world, right? Because you gave it to me. Uh, and because it was from them in their names. They got all of the credit and adoration. And that was the goal. Because if Erica wanted that ad uh, credit, she would have put her name on it, said it was from her, but she didn't. And she just stood in the background and smiled and was happy to see me and the boys happy and spend that moment together in that moment, even though she did all the work. Well, that is what it's like, I think, when Jesus credits to us all of his righteousness and he imputes it to you. It is like Jesus getting a gift for his dear father in heaven. And it is the gift of the perfect life, a pure and innocent and holy heart, the most beautiful heart imaginable, one without deceit, one without blemish, one that is thinking only good things, not one blemish or sinful thought or impulse in that heart. It is the gift of a most beautiful life ever lived, one of perfect obedience and perfect prayer and perfect trust and joy and uh, one that never coveted or anything. And this is something that God has never received before from anybody ever in, the, his, in, in eternity. He's never received something like this. But Jesus can accomplish this and he did get it. And so Jesus goes out and does all the work. He weeps in pain. He sweats drops of blood, pours out every ounce of life in his body to attain and win this perfect heart. And he wraps it all up and he gives it to the Father and he puts your name on it. And he says it's from you, as if you did it. <laughs> like you did all the work. And then the Father receives this righteousness, this, this perfect heart, this beautiful and the father opens it, that, that, this heart that the Lord himself paid for with his life. And then the father looks at you and he smiles at you and he says, I love this. It is perfect. And he embraces you and he thanks you and he praises you and he says how it's the most wonderful thing in the world. And he gives you the credit. And then Jesus stands on the side looking and smiling and he's just happy. 
because he earned that moment for you. He caused it to happen. That he's happy that the Father is happy with you and that you are happy with the Father. Now, this isn't just wishful thinking. That is what 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 21 teaches. It says this, For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we would become that gift, that thing that the Father receives and does not turn away. And even though we didn't do any of the work. And this is true also, no matter how you feel. You are the righteousness of God and you are perfect and holy in his sight. And he is happy with you and you are without blemish before his face, even though you may not feel like it at all. And we don't say this because we feel righteous. We say it because it's true. Because the Holy Spirit has convinced us through the word. Okay, now the third thing is the final thing that the Holy Spirit will do. And it is this, is that he will convict us concerning judgment. Now, I admit that the first time that I read these words, I thought it was a bad thing. But it's not because Jesus says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Not you. He's not talking about you, but, but the devil himself. The devil is the ruler of this world. And the main work of the devil is to accuse that is what, uh, literally what the word in Hebrew, Satan, Satan, means. It means to accuse, the, the accuser, uh, the adversary. Now, an, an, an accuser is somebody who claims that somebody else has done something wrong. Someone who witnesses and then points the finger and says, look, you, you did this wrong. Uh, it's the person that tells you that you're guilty of something and that for that you should receive punishment. So that is what the devil does. He digs up all of our sins and he hounds us and, and throws them in our face. He points the finger at us and he's listing all of the wrongs we've done. He's heaping guilt upon guilt. And the problem is that he sounds very convincing. And with the list of sins that, he's, that are etched into your memory, it seems like the devil has a very strong case against us. Jesus says he forgives us, but then the devil comes and starts listing our sins and saying, well, what about these? <laughs> There's thousands, there are millions of sins. And then we don't know what to believe. Do we trust that forgiveness is true, even though we don't see it or feel it or experience it? Or do we believe the devil who tells us of things that we actually know and feel and experience and remember in our life? Which word, do we, which, which word holds true? The work of the Holy Spirit is to convince you that the devil is lying and that he is already judged to be a liar. That if he's judged to be a liar, then the things he says about you are no longer true. It is true they used to be true, but they're no longer true. Because you are baptized and you are forgiven and you receive the body and blood of Christ for your forgiveness. And that means that the long list of sins, all of the ones you've committed, the ones that come to mind that haunt you, all of these are not yours. They have been wiped away because the Lord wiped them away with his blood. And so when the devil accuses you and says, look, you will not go to heaven. You are too evil and sinful of a person. You're still in your sins. You cannot have a place with God. Look at all of these sins. 
then God says, what sins? Right? Which ones? I don't see them. I don't remember them. Luther knew this well. Uh, and there's this beautiful quote in, from his letters of spiritual counsel, and I'll uh, get ready to close with this. He says that Christ has forgiven all, all of our sins. And then he says this. He says, because of that, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, then you tell him this. I admit it, that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Dear saints, the devil is judged. It is not that he will be judged, he is judged already, and that means that no matter what it looks like or feels like, the devil is not winning. And that also means that the devil is not losing. It means that the devil has lost because he is already judged. Because of what Jesus did for you and for how he forgave you, the devil is now a liar. Because you're not in your sins, you are in the righteous, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And all of this is what the Holy Spirit has come to teach you this day, to convince you that you are indeed a sinner, but that you are a sinner whom the Lord has died for. And because of that, the ruler of this world is judged. So dear saints, may the God, our Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit continue to convince you of all the truth and declare it to you until your final hour. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.